The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, because without you we are not able to please you, mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, so we're keeping up with the catechism. Uh, we are currently on this section uh, in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ. Um, we just wrapped up this meaning of these uh, two words, uh, Jesus and Christ, and then came on uh, the next two, why is Jesus called the Father's only Son? Uh, the next one we're going to deal with is question 52. Um, this is page 39, if you're following along. What do you mean when you call Jesus Christ Lord? I acknowledge Jesus' divine authority over the church and all creation, over all societies and their leaders, and over every aspect of my life, both public and private. I surrender my entire life to him and seek to live in a way that pleases him. Um, the word Lord, uh, I... I hesitate to say this about the catechism, but they really, they really, this one, this one got botched somehow or other. The word Lord in the Old Testament means God. Um, well, why? Well, the, the, the Hebrew word for the, for the God of, for their God is Yahweh, and they never say it. Um, instead, they, they say the word Adonai, or today you'll hear some Jewish people saying Moshiach, um, or that's the Messiah, or uh, Hashem being the name, right? Um, and the reason they do that is that the divine name is holy and they don't want to say it, uh, which, you know, good on them for not saying it. Um, but here's the thing. Um, by calling Jesus Lord, this was the claim that he was God. And not just from the Jewish perspective, but from the Greek perspective as well. Um, you may remember that, uh, that there's a great controversy over this among the Pharisees because they, uh, well, there are several things that stand out. Caesar claimed the name Lord for himself. And it was to the point where uh, on denarius, on a denarius, the, the Roman coin, it actually says Caesar is Lord on the coin. So when the Pharisees come to Jesus asking, you know, is it lawful to pay the taxes to Caesar or not? What are, they, what are they complaining about? They're complaining about it being an act of idolatry to pay taxes to Caesar. In fact, actually carrying the coin might be considered a form of idolatry by them. Um, and this is something that is actually really, uh, really interesting to me, which is that um, in, ancient, in the ancient world, gods, including Caesar, including the pharaohs, could take on multiple what we call in Greek hypostases. They're kind of, um, uh, you know, the God can take on many, many, many forms, right? So when you put that idol on your, on your mantelpiece, right, that's not just an image of the God, that's the God in its local hypostases. Um, and the reason I say that is that, that this was a widespread understanding, which is that uh, pagans believed that gods took on many forms and they could be, they could, in a sense, um, I don't want to say take up residence, but be, but be represented not in a kind of um, symbolic way, but in a deep way through the various idols that you would see. Um, and that means that this is going to be very offensive to Pharisees because if you're a Jew, what do you believe about the, the idea that, that the gods can have multiple hypostases? <laughs> Try again. God is not contained within creation. Um, and at the same time, I should note that Christians actually use this language in an updated way to talk about the persons of the Trinity because the Greek word for person that, they actually, that the church actually takes changes and uses is the word hypostasis. Um, that's the word we have in the, in the creeds. Um, but I say that all because uh, this, uh, this understanding that Jesus is Lord is simply this, that Jesus is God and King. Both of those things are contained there. Um, so we should say this, that because of that, because of that, that simple statement, and by the way, the ancient church, by saying Jesus is Lord, they were entering into a kind of um, uh, rebellion against the state. That's what that is. I mean, let's just say it out loud. That's what they were doing. They were, they were committing high treason by claiming Jesus is Lord. 
Um, but they claim this, that Jesus has divine authority over the church and over all creation, over all societies and their leaders, and over every aspect of my life, both public and private. Um, I surrender my entire life to him and seek to live in a way that pleases him. So it's not just about Jesus being Lord over all creation and societies, but me. <laughs> and that's the really tough part, isn't it? It's like, I can just sort of say, well, uh, yeah, there are a lot of bad things going on in our country, but isn't it great that Jesus is the Lord? But when it comes to me, it's like, there's a lot of bad things going on in my life, and <laughs> is it really true that Jesus is Lord right now in this mess that I'm in? Um, that's the hard part. So, uh, but, but this, is, this is the deal, right? And is it over just some aspects or all? It's all. Um, we live in a very compartmentalized society. We do this all the time. We, we have a sharp, uh, a sharp divide between the sacred and the secular, between uh, my work and my home. Um, we have built all of these containers for various parts of our lives. And part of the problem with it is that we, um, we kind of figure, hey, here I am at school, and so I'm going to be in school right now, and that's, I'm a student, so I'm taking on this hat. Um, when I'm home, I'm going to be in that one, and when I'm at work, I'm going to be in that one. Um, which makes sense. I think everybody's done that for a long time. We're doing it more now than we ever have before. But the problem there is we just sort of say, okay, well, maybe Jesus is just Lord when I'm in church. Or maybe Jesus is just Lord when I'm home. Or maybe, and, and that's the issue, is that we can't compartmentalize those things. All right, let's move on. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Question 53, what does it mean that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit? Jesus was conceived not through a human father, but by the Holy Spirit coming upon the Virgin Mary in power. Um, this is a great you know, thing to kind of focus on, which is that Jesus has no human father. He does have a human mother. And that's something we were saying last week, is that he actually gets his entire human nature from his mother. Um, you and I are different. We got our human matter from our mother and father. Don't think about it very long. It'll don't think about it. Uh, <laughs> but 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 here it is. It's that we receive that full human nature from that that uh, from both parents. Jesus receives it from his mother. Um, and the reason we say that is that the Holy Spirit comes upon her in power. Um, in fact, the word the language uses that. Uh, by the angel is that the, the, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Um, so the teaching is that in this mysterious act, in her is conceived uh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Okay, any questions there? Yeah, you can't really think too, you can't go too far about it, but it's just, just basically to say that, um, that there is no human father here. Um, Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit uh, is, is to say that... Uh, that um, the means by which she is conceived is God. That's what we. Are, that's what's being said here, is that God is um, is, in a sense, collab. Well, very truly, collaborating with Mary to bring forth the incarnation. What happened at Jesus' conception in Mary's womb? The eternal son, whom God named Jesus, assumed a fully human nature from his mother, the Virgin Mary, at the moment of conception in her womb. So here's the other part of that, is that when did this happen? Like when Jesus started kicking? No, it's from conception, from the moment of conception. Um, this is important language for a lot of reasons. I'm sure you can guess at them. But, but the big one is this, that human life begins at conception. Um, and Jesus' human life begins at his conception. Now, this is part of the interesting part, but, but Christians have not always agreed as to when conception begins, but they've always agreed that human life begins at conception. Okay? So that, that may be just a bit of a technicality, but I don't think it's actually entirely technical because what, they've, what, we've, what we've basically been able to say is, hey, as soon as there's a recognizably different human being in the womb of their mother, that's when they are human. Well, what do we know now? That this happens at the very moment um, that, that those cells come together and immediately start to divide. 
Um, so we can say that's when human life begins. And in fact, that's the truth, right? Um, at the moment of conception, an embryo has its own unique DNA. It has its, it starts to have very quickly its own unique human systems, et cetera. And so this is what, what we teach about um, the, the, this uh, human nature, which he assumes at the moment of conception. This is an important thing, and I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, I don't want well, to, by passing right over it, just sort of say, well, oh, oh no, no big deal. But think about it for a moment. The divine Son of God had always been God. He had not always been human. And according to church teaching, this is what changes in a sense. And I don't want to say this changes God, but it, but it means that God takes on this full human nature and never lets go. Just always will be both God and man in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's flip the page. Question 55. Why is it important to say that Jesus was born? It is important to affirm that he is one of us, truly human, born to a human mother, and raised in a human family. Now, this may seem like, well, big duh, if he's a human being, of course he's born. Well, not to ancient people. Um, many heresies taught something like this, that uh, Jesus Christ was uh, sort of uh, zapped onto the scene or, uh, or, you know, born of Mary because of a human father and then sort of adopted as God's only son. Um, and all of these have been rejected. Why? keep calling you back to it. Why do we reject all that? Because of Scripture, right? This is not what the Gospels say about what happened. Um, there are other Gospels, proto you know, kind of these all manner of Gnostic Gospels, etc., that will say something else. But the Gospels which Christians read say very strongly that this is what happens. The Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. She gives birth to a son. Um, and, and it is this son whom the angels come to worship, um, and the kings of the earth come to worship. All right. Why, is the, why was the other reason that this is important? I, I think it's actually probably the prime reason this is important. And, and it's, a, it's an important thing to say about the incarnation. So are we clear about what the incarnation means? There's, there should be a whole question. What is the incarnation? Um, but it's this understanding that God has taken on flesh, right? I mean, our bishop... I'll never forget this. I was 14. He was a newly ordained priest, and he was saying, you know, like chili con carne, right? It's like, what's the difference between chili con carne and normal chili? It's like, well, chili con carne has meat in it. Well, there you go. It's, it's, a, it's the incarnation is taking on human flesh. Um, why is this important? Why does it matter that God takes on human flesh? So there's a, there's a summary of the, the church father's teaching on this subject. It goes like this. What has not been assumed cannot be redeemed. So it's this understanding that basically if Jesus does not take on everything that it means to be a human being, everything, every part of our nature, he cannot redeem it. Okay, so that's, that's neat, isn't it? It's like, um, now, now there's a problem there because you're saying, you're saying about God cannot, okay? But actually, what's actually being said, what has not been assumed cannot be redeemed. So it's that um, in order to redeem human nature, he assumes the whole human nature. Okay. Well, there's something even bigger than that. And this is something that Athanasius, point, Athanasius points out. Could God have just sort of simply said, I'm dropping the debt, I'm burning it in the fire, you owe me nothing now for the state of sin? Yes, okay. If Look, the answer to the question, can God do, is yes, right? <laughs> about, about everything that's not illogical and impossible within a rational world, okay? Um, yes, he could have done that. He could have said, Drop, I'm dropping the debt, it's gone, okay? Let me just tell you, this is how sometimes the gospel gets presented, is I'm dropping the debt, Jesus paid it all. That's true, right? But the Incarnation even shows us a deeper view into the quality of salvation, which is not just drop the debt, restore them. What is it? <laughs> fully restore, fully, I mean, I would even say fully renovate human nature. Um, don't take them back to the way it was before the fall. Why not? That was nice. 
but there's a problem, right? Um, I was preaching at a wedding yesterday, and, and um, here's part of the problem. Look, before the fall happens, God looks at Adam before Eve is created, and what does he say about Adam? getting your Bibles. Yeah, it's not good for man to be alone, okay? So he says, look, here he is. He's completely alone. This is bad. It's not good, okay? Sin hasn't entered into the world. I mean, but Adam is alone, and that's a bad thing. Well, why? Think about it. Well, yeah, he... He, he can't make other atoms, okay? Let's just say that. Can't, can't go around doing that, that's for sure. He's got, he's got equipment that he can't really use fully, right? I mean, he can go to the bathroom, I'm sure, but, but I think there's probably something more to this, looking down at himself, right? I mean, let's just be honest about it. This is what's going on. He, he sees himself in reference to the created world around him, and what's the problem? He doesn't see himself in it. He sees the creation. And here's the problem. He's actually in search of who he really is. Well, why? Because that's what we all do. We all do this. We're all looking like, who am I really? So there he is. He's alone. And what does God say? Let us make him a helper, one who is like him. That's great, right? So God recognizes a problem. He responds lovingly, gives him Eve. That's the story. He looks at her. What does he say? It's amazing. He says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So what does he do? He recognizes himself in the woman. Why am I saying all this to you? Because I actually think there's something which, which shadows forth the gospel in that simple statement, it is not good for man to be alone. Because think about it. Is marriage the ultimate solution to this problem of loneliness and solitude? No. It's actually to be brought into the divine life. Adam is made in God's image, and yet he's still lonely. Well, why? Because he's not fully with God. Okay. So I want you to see this because the incarnation says the solution is actually greater than the problem initially feels like or initially looks like. There's a much greater problem at play here, um, which is why, uh, you know, the, the, the scriptures and especially people like St. Augustine say, hey, look, you know, the cure is better than the disease, right? Um, the life, the redeemed life is better than we were even prior to the fall, which is great, right? So another way to put it is like this. I once renovated a kitchen that had not been touched since 1977. Yeah, it was awesome. And what would have happened if I'd said to my wife, hey, look, you know, we've got a new refrigerator in here, and, and I'm, I'm not really interested in, you know, doing this if we're not going to be able to get it back to the way it was in 1977. So I found this beautiful green, pea green refrigerator. Let's, let's get it in there. I said, you know, I want all the appliances to look just like they did in 1977. Yeah, that obviously wasn't going to happen, right? So we got new cabinets, beautiful white cabinets, white subway tile, you know. The kitchen was gorgeous. It had stainless steel appliances and all of that. Why? Because it wasn't about restoring it. What was it? It was about renewing it to a higher and even more functional state than it would have been before. Um, this is the language of redemption. It's not going back. It's being renewed to a higher state. In fact, there's a Greek word, anakinosis, which appears in, in several places in Scripture that's for this. So when Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds, he's saying, be, he's actually, I'll just kind of give you the Greek paraphrase, be metamorphosized by this anakinosis, which is happening, which is happening to your mind. Uh, that's kind of a good, a good way to put it. All right, should we move on? Was Mary, so it's almost like, have we not hammered on this enough? Well, let's go at it again. Was Mary the only biological parent of Jesus? Yes, while still a virgin, Mary submitted to the will of God and bore the Son of God. Therefore, she is held in high honor. However, in obedience to God, 
Joseph took Mary as his wife and raised Jesus as his son. Okay, there's a lot going on here. And I've actually learned a lot more about this uh, over the last, actually, several weeks. But there's, there's a surprising amount of evidence that Mary was possibly a, a temple virgin at the time. These were women who served in the, in the temple um, as sort of consecrated virgins. Uh, there is a long history, and this may sound very strange to you, but of these consecrated virgins being assigned older men to be their husbands. Uh, who would look after them, who would take care of them. Uh, a lot of this is happening, and, and it seems like, well, that's a strange thing to say, but here it is. That's kind of the idea. It's like, hey, she serves in the temple. It's pretty clear that she knows Jerusalem quite well. Um, it's pretty clear that uh, she's, well, she's definitely from a priestly family. Um, and so there she is. She's in the temple. Um, and, uh, but but there, are lot, there are lots of kind of twists and turns here. Um, uh, but but that's the that's the 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 thought here is that um, she was a kind of consecrated virgin who would have been serving in the temple in that way, um, which makes sense. Um, another way to put it is just that yeah, she didn't know she wasn't ready to be married. She had been betrothed to Joseph, and here she is, something like fourteen years old. Holy Spirit comes upon her. Um, but that's. That's right there, and it's and it's why um, it's for that reason that you, you you I mean part of the struggle here is that there are a lot of people who say oh well come on come on what a convenient answer to a teenage pregnancy it's like yeah I'm going to say come on to you right because here's the problem like those things just didn't happen back then in the rate that they happen today just didn't happen. Um, this was a very serious time, right? If you were, and in fact, if you were betrothed to be married to some guy, he would actually have one of his friends follow you around to make sure that that didn't happen. Okay, so this is a very different society from ours. It's not like ours. Um, so there's a lot of good evidence for for this um, for this. Well, not just that, but. But scripture itself, I mean, Mary says, how shall this be since I'm a virgin? How can this be? Um, and I actually think she's not actually talking about, um, though she is, making reference to this kind of biological virginity. She's actually talking about, I think, something like, but I've been set apart to that is not supposed to happen, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, how's that going to be? All right. So should we move on? What is the relationship between Jesus' divine and human natures? At the moment of Jesus' conception, the divine nature of the one eternal person of the Son was united to our human nature. Therefore, Jesus Christ is fully and truly both divine and human, but without sin. His two natures are united without division, separation, mixture, or change. Okay, there's a lot going on here. I want to kind of get all of it out there. At the moment of Jesus' conception, the divine nature of the one eternal person of the Son was united to our human nature. So that's good, okay? Here's the problem. It's all too easy to kind of sort of to think something like this. Hey, uh, maybe it's just the case that like, yeah, okay, he's, he's human, but is he really human? Because it could be, and I made mention this last week, like, hey, why not just cook up some new kind of human nature in a lab and give it to him? Like, that'd work. That's not what's said. What's said is that Mary is his mother. She gives him not just the human nature that he has, but get this, our human nature. Okay, and you might say, well, how's that possible? And, and I'd be really clear with you, because you know, a lot of us have sort of taken on this assumption that like, yeah, but, but it's bound up in human nature to be a sinner. And I would just say, no, it isn't. It's bound up in human nature to be made in the image of God. Okay. Sin is, is, a, is, a, is a brokenness that enters into human life. Um, but, but it's not a part of our nature. It's not what we were created to be. So to say that Jesus has a full human nature and yet is without sin is not a contradiction. It's actually a fulfillment of what, is, of what it means to be made as a human being. So let's move on from there. Therefore, Jesus, Jesus Christ is fully and truly both divine and human, but without sin. 
His two natures are united without division, separation, mixture, or change. All right, so there's another question that deals with this, but I just want to kind of get into what these, what these mean. Division, meaning the natures are not divided because they exist in one person. So what do we say about that? Well, we're going to get to it in the next question. They're not separated because from, the, from that moment on, his divine and human natures are not separate, period. And you might say, well, what about when he dies? Okay, Is your human nature separate from who you are when you die? No, it's not. Uh, no, you remain fully yourself after death. Right? Um, death does not obliterate your human nature. It doesn't obliterate the fact that you're a human being. Uh, it doesn't do that. Mixture. So this is interesting. How can, it be, how can it be that they are without division, without separation, and yet without mixture? Well, it means that each nature remains what it is. Okay? So this full human nature doesn't sort of get absorbed into the divine nature nor does the divine nature get absorbed into the human nature. And this is really important because uh, if you think about Caesar and how he thinks about himself being king, Caesar considered himself to basically be a hypostasis of a god. Okay, Pharaoh, same thing. Although with Jesus, what's, what's going on here? His body is not just sort of like uh, one of the many persons that he, the God's son, might take on. Right? Yeah, it, it, his human nature actually um, uh, is, is, um, is, in a sense, I would just say undefiled in this sense. Like, I know that sounds weird to say that, 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 that kind of God, the, the divine nature might defile his human nature, but that's essentially it, right? It means that he is a full human being. Always will be, um, as human as you are. Um, or change, meaning that uh, that the that these two natures exist in one divine being and will not. That will never change. Did not change. Won't change. Hasn't changed, etc. Okay. Well, I think this next question really puts the icing on the cake for this. Question fifty-eight. What does the union of Jesus' two natures teach you about his ministry? All Jesus does as a human being, he also does as God. His human words and deeds are saving because they are the words and deeds of the Son of God, of God the Son. Okay, should we get into this? This is where a lot of people start to have a fit, right? Uh, and I'll tell you this story if you promise not to repeat it. Uh, when, when I was uh, a young priest presenting drafts of the catechism to the bishops, I was like 30 and put in front of them and they said, well, so like, do you have any questions? One, old, one senior bishop sort of raised his hand, and he said, well, he read this question, and the answer. This would seem to indicate that God died on the cross. We don't want to say that, do we? And I said to him, Bishop, that's the gospel. Like, the, the gospel is that God died on a cross, yes. Like, that's exactly what we want to say. And then I gave him a little lesson on a word, on a, on a on a term called the communicatio idiomatum, which is the theological basis of this question and answer. And it's basically this, that when we speak about Jesus, the idioms which we use for his divine and human natures have to communicate back and forth. Okay. It's a simple way to keep it in mind, which is that um, as you're reading scripture, you ought not think like, oh, Jesus wept. That must be his human side. He, he does not weep as one nature and not the other, right? He weeps as the incarnate Son of God in one person um, without confusion, without division. Um, another way to put it would be to say, oh, Jesus is healing this man on the road, okay? You say, that's his divine nature working. Nope. Try again. Who is it? Jesus Christ, God incarnate. He, he, he can't act in one nature and not the other. From the moment of his conception, that's how it is with Jesus. Okay? Um, and so I want you to be, we need to be really careful about this. However, having said that, we can say that he is a divine person, and therefore everything that happens to him, everything that happens to him happens to God. So this is why the ancient church 
says emphatically that uh, Mary is the mother of God and not just the mother of his incarnate uh, nature, you might say. Okay? She's his mother. Um, God is born. Uh, God has, you know, bowel movements. God uh, wears a diaper. God, all those things, right? That's, you take that out of the picture, there's nothing shocking about the incarnation at all. Especially to pagans who believe that God can sort of like have a hypostasis in any human being he wants to, like that's fine. Um, but that's not what's being said here either, right? And in the, in the language of the church, the hypostasis is the incarnate Son of God, the divine Son. Have I lost you now? Okay, this is really important because it, 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 it shows us the gospel. I mean, look, if it's just some guy dying on a cross, then who cares, right? It's, it's God, the Son, dying on the cross in a human, in a, human, in a full human nature. Also, you think about that, apply that to the resurrection for a moment. Human life is raised up from the grave. Okay. Um, but it's also that God triumphs over the grave um, at the same time. Uh, one thing that I would just note about this is the reason we get the heebie-jeebies about saying God died is we think to, to, to die means go bye-bye, right? Disappear, never real again, completely gone, blah, blah, blah. It's like you're not thinking like a Christian when you say that. Right? For, for dying to mean disappearing, you know, uh, collapsing into nothingness, right? Means you're probably, you probably can't even claim to be like, it's just a mess, right? Because here's the problem. We, we think like materialists all the time to the point where it's like, oh, I don't want to say God died, that'd be bad. Well, no. What is death? It's, it's this. It's that life is changed, not ended. Like, you're an immortal human. You're an immortal person. You, in a sense, you can't die in the sense of your nature or your existence passing out of existence. You can die in another way, which is what? To live out life apart from God. That's definitely a death. What else is a kind of death? Yeah, when your body stops doing things that bodies do, like breathing, uh, eating, drinking, all the rest. Well, that's what we call death, but it's not final. Um, and it's not final because of the resurrection, and we'll, we'll get there. Um, so I don't know how you can have a problem with, uh, and just be honest with you, good bishops need to be catechized too, because a lot of them were not. Um, but look at this. How can you believe in the resurrection as an important thing and believe that death is sort of final. You can. Um, so we'll get there. Any questions thus far? You don't look as scandalized as other people have looked in the past. You're like, God died? I don't want to say that. Well, look, if you're going to be a Christian, you got to start. Because <laughs> that's the deal. All right. Why did Jesus suffer? Jesus suffered as a sacrifice for our sins so that we could have peace with God as prophesied in the Old Testament. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So while we can say emphatically that the incarnation saves us, right? We can also say emphatically that Jesus' suffering saves us, heals us, uh, redeems us, um, our iniquities are, are taken care of. But listen to this. Jesus suffered as a sacrifice for sins so that we could have peace with God as prophesied in the Old Testament. So there's something about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that is an Old Testament sacrifice. Right? It's like, this is what happens, okay? In the Old Testament world, it's like this. Guilt has to be expiated. You, you, can't, you can't go around guilty. That won't do, right? And, and look, you and I know this in ways that, are, that we've experienced, right? You go home one day, and your mama asks you, did you take $10 out of my purse? No. 
How's your week going to go? Unless you're a sociopath, you're going to be guilt-ridden for a while at least until you start to forget about it a little bit. But, but your week's not going to go well because you're going, to be, you're going to be full of guilt. Okay? Think about it another way. You lie about a friend. You, you know, whatever it might be. You're going to bear that guilt, and it has to be expiated. So there, there, are, there are only a few ways that that can happen if you really think about it. What's going to happen? I might harm myself. That'd be a way to expiate guilt. You know, you, and you and you even use uh, language about this. Well, you know, don't beat yourself up over it. And often when I hear that, I'm like, but I am beating myself up over it. I'm really upset about this. <laughs> this guilt has to be expiated. Okay, well, that's one. What's another way? Well, you could tell the truth. Yeah, I mean, sure. But but are you going to feel better about it? Maybe, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you might, okay. But, but did the guilt get taken care of? Look, if we just believed that every criminal who tells the truth should be set free, we wouldn't worry about like, anything beyond that. We'd just say, oh, oh good, you've acknowledged the truth. Like, here, you can go. Like, no, there has to be expiation. So what happens? Yeah, they take the, they take the guilt. Well, what else could happen? Ooh. There's, there's one more sinister option, which is, well, I sinned against you, so I could just kill you. That would take care of the problem. Then there'd be nothing to be guilty to. Right? You could do that. Okay, fine. That's actually an option, right? Um, other option is you have a substitutionary sacrifice. Right? You say, okay, well, look, I can't do anything about the fact that I took 10 bucks and spent it because I don't have 10 bucks. So I can't give it back to you. That much is clear. So what, what, what do I now have to do? I either have to make up for it, which in this case, because it's sin, is impossible, or I gotta come up with some sort of sacrifice on the other side. But that's never good enough either, is it? So what happens in, what happens in this suffering of Jesus is that he, he takes on uh, the, 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 the due penalty of our guilt um, in, a, in a horrifying way. Let's say how. In what ways did Jesus suffer? On earth, the incarnate Son shared physically, emotionally, and spiritually in the temptations and sufferings common to all people, yet without sin. In his agony and desolation on the cross, he uniquely suffered in my place for my sins, and in so doing, revealed God's love and compassion for fallen and suffering humanity. So the first thing is a bit of a surprising thing. It's like, oh, we think Jesus didn't suffer at all until when? His passion. Come on. That's like saying, I didn't really suffer until I got cancer. Have you suffered? Look, you're not being self-indulgent by saying, I have. Yeah, I've suffered. Okay. Um, the, the reality of it is that we all suffer stuff. We all suffer all the time. We suffer abandonment. We suffer, um, we suffer guilt. We suffer, um, we suffer the consequences of our own actions and sins, etc. We do it all the time. We do it in ways that people don't even know about, right? It's like nobody knows about certain things. It's like, that's me. That's, me. that's, that's what I turn into when I'm alone. Um, so all of that is there, and you might say, well, but Jesus was perfect. Surely he didn't suffer. It's like, okay, let's try it again. Is compassion a form of suffering? Yes, that's what the word means. Like Compassion means that you suffer with someone. So to see a friend suffer is a kind of suffering. Um, to see pain, to see misery, to see uh, to see poverty, to see all those things is, is painful. It should be painful. But finally, in his agony and desolation, and those two words are, are uh, very important. Um, first is the agony, the pain of it, right? Have you ever been in agony? I have been. Uh, you know, not just not just physical agony, but but psychological torment. Um, real agony, um, but also desolation. What does desolation mean? 
It's loneliness, right? So let's go back to what we were talking about before. Think of Adam in the garden. What's his problem? He's alone. Is this a part of human nature that Jesus can experience? You bet, right? You bet he can because he's a human being. Um, and, and God uh, allows him to feel deeply this desolation. Okay? I don't like the words of like, well, the father's turned his face away and all these sorts of things. Like, no, no, no. It's enough that Jesus is a human being and he experiences the kind of desolation and loneliness that you and I often experience and in ways that we can't imagine. That's sufficient. Okay, he uniquely suffered in my place. Now, this is, this is where we get into some controversy. It's like, oh, in my place. Like, does that mean that God would kill me if it wasn't for Jesus? It's like, uh, yeah, maybe. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm willing to say that, maybe. Um, I want to be clear, though, that substitutionary looks at the atonement are, are only one way to look at the atonement. There are many other ways to look at atonement and what, how it functions. Um, well, Why? Because it's pretty darn complex, if you think about it. Like, it's not simple. I mean, there are so many pitfalls in talking about what happens on the cross that it's hard to just avoid them, right? So that means that the number of possible thoughts on this are pretty high. I mean, think about it. There are, there are the theologians who say things like, well, the cross is just divine child abuse. That's a hard one to respond to. Now, I'll respond to it. I'll say, yeah, well, okay, Jesus could have gotten out of it had he wanted to. Well, he couldn't do that because he was God. Yeah, he could have gotten out of it, right? Um, probably would have led to, led to the meltdown of all creation, but, you know, he could have gotten out of it. Um, but he, he undertakes it. Um, well, why? Because he willed it. Yeah, well, he was God. He was also a human being, right? So, like, all of this works together. He's, you know, he's both. All right. Um, but I think that's really important, is, is that there's always been some kind of understanding of substitution in Christian teaching, right? It's, it's something like you had something that, was, that you had, that, that, you, that you probably should have been the one to do in terms of expiation, and you didn't have to. So it's something like that. Okay. How do Jesus' sufferings help you? Jesus has experienced our sufferings, understands our sorrows, and is able to sympathize with our weakness. Therefore, I should bear my sufferings in perse with perseverance and hope, for my Savior is with me in them, and through them I will come to know him more fully. Um, human suffering is a mystery to most people in the world. Okay? Um, it goes something like this. Uh, look, I really think Christians and Jews are about the only people who really can understand suffering in a, in a, in a good sense. Okay, if you're Muslim, how do you think about suffering? Allah, he hates me. That's pretty much the answer, actually. Like, he just hates me. I've, I've done something wrong. He hates me. I'm going to bear pain for it. There's no idea of redemptive suffering in Islam at all. None. Um, okay, let's try out uh, Hinduism. Why am I suffering? You yeah, you deserve it. <laughs> well, but I didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah, you did before. You just don't remember. Right? In another life, you did something really bad, and karma is biting you hard. Right? Okay. That's another one. Buddhism. Your suffering is not real. It's an illusion. And what you need is a bodhisattva to show you the true way, some kind of like godlike figure, angelic figure, to show you that you really don't exist. And, the, and then you'll be fine, because you'll, you'll, you'll achieve enlightenment, and you'll know that none of this is actually real, and, and you're just sort of wasting your time feeling bad about it. Like, oof. Like, <laughs> like that's, a tough, that's a tough one, right? It's like, why? why would I live in a world that has all this suffering and then, you know, just sort of say, well, it's not real. Like, it's an answer, but it's not a good one. Um, the, the Christian response to this question of, of how sufferings 
just the idea that sufferings can help you, right, is massive. Now, of course, I'll say this. We all know it does, right? Like, talk to anybody who's older than 60 and say, well, you know, how did you suffer in your life? It's like, well, a lot of people died, and I went through a lot of this and a lot of that, and I was bankrupt, and I did that. It's just, they'll give you a whole list and say, what if you could have not done all that? And they'll immediately say, like, I don't know why I would want that. Because then I'd be self-centered. <laughs> and then I'd be awful. And then I'd be like, hor- I'd be horrible if that didn't happen. Um, so, you know, thanks be to God it did. That's one answer. Um, but here's the, uh, here's the ultimate answer. Is that Jesus understands it. Uh, he has experienced our sufferings. He understands it. He's able to sympathize with our weakness. And therefore, um, I can bear my sufferings with perseverance and hope. Um, This is an important thing about hope, too. Hope in the New Testament is not just this idea of like, oh, well, it might be really crappy here, but but I believe it's going to get better. Is that hope? How's that going to work out? It might work. It also might not. Is that hope? Now, hope in the New Testament is something much more like proof. Okay, so the New Testament understands that it's like this. We saw God die and rise again. So we got hope. And God even gives us hope on top of that. So it's, it's, it's like, it's proof. It's this idea that I've got the proof. Um, and then because of that, what? Well, I can bear up all manner of things, if that's the case. Um, I really, and really can. Um, now, I don't want to dash your idea that like hope is, a, is an attitude, because it, it truly is. But um, most people have been kind of, well, this is funny, they've, they've been habituated in the way of thinking of hope as a kind of habit of the mind. And that's not what it is from the perspective of the New Testament. It's much more like, uh, like, like proof for... Uh, for um, how life actually is within God's world. Okay. Um, which is actually that something like this, that, that suffering isn't meaningless. It actually, it actually gains meaning from God. All right, one more question. Why does the creed say that Jesus suffered under the Roman governor Pontius Pilate? The creed thus makes clear that Jesus' life and death were real events that occurred in a particular time and place in Judea in the first century A.D. Pontius Pilate was a real person. You can look him up. Uh, uh, And in fact, there are historical accounts which refer to Jesus himself. Um, But the centering of this on Pontius Pilate is important because it says says a couple of things, and I want to make these all clear. Um, one is that there's been a temptation to blame the Jews for what happened to Jesus on the cross. Okay? And, and, and it's been used as a sort of um, uh, justification for anti-Semitism. Okay? Um, the gospel seemed to present a much more complex picture, which is that were, were Jewish people calling for Jesus' head? Yeah, no doubt. They absolutely were. Were, were. were all Jews calling for his head? Not by any standard whatsoever. Who actually handed down the sentence, though? It's Pontius Pilate, right? I mean, that's how it happened. And, and, and he hands down the sentence not by kind of saying, okay, well, go crucify him. He says, I'm done. Like, <laughs> you take him. I'm renouncing all my authority in this. You, you go do it. So it's kind of this uh, fudge, actually, that goes on. Um, but it's pretty clear that without the, without the authority of Pontius Pilate, this never would have happened. Um, so this centers that really keenly in that place. I also think it's really important um, because it preserves attention there in the New Testament. Right? Jesus is not crucified by the Jewish people over and above the protestations of the Roman governor. There's collaboration here. They, they carry it out together. It's, 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 a, it's a mutual decision. Okay. 
Um, that's why it says under Pontius Pilate. Um, the other important thing here is that it's important to note, and I think this is really key, is that if it had been that just the Jewish people sacrificed Jesus or killed him, then then you might get the impression, oh, well, good for the Jews. You know, they figured out a way to save themselves. It's like, what about, what about us? What about Gentiles? Um, and it's clear that there's Gentile complicity in this thing. Um, it's a miscarriage of justice. And there's a tension there because you don't want to put, you, you, you can't really easily put too much on one side or the other. Um, and in fact, that's not really what's going on in Scripture I, anyway. It's, they, they all have a reason to want Jesus dead, right? Uh, the Jews have their reason, which is this. If I can just kind of lay it out quickly because I'm running out of time. Yeah, if he keeps doing what he's doing, we're all going to die. Okay, that's the reality. Because that will be seen as rebellion and we'll all die. And Jerusalem will be under siege. Well, look, that happened anyway about 37 years later. Okay, happened anyway. Um, and in fact, began about 30 years later. Uh, well, what's the other thing that you can say for the Romans? You got it printed on the coins you use every day. There's no king but Caesar. That's the way it is. To say otherwise is to put yourself in a whole lot of trouble. Well, there you go. Um, everybody had a reason to want him dead. Um, what we really should say is, I have a reason to want Jesus dead. Right? He makes me super uncomfortable. I don't like having to think about all the ways that I'm faulty or guilty or whatever it is. I hate that. Jesus, would you please stop talking to me? It's that kind of thing. Um, and we have to remember that, that, uh, that we are complicit in this thing. Um, uh, so there you have it. Okay. Onward and upward next week. I think we're going to hit the resurrection next week. So enjoy. Um, so this coming week, we'll have catechesis. The following week, Hans Borsma is going to teach catechesis, which I think you'll enjoy and love. Um, Hans is going to talk about what's the big deal about sin. So... Uh, and he's always entertaining and fun and, and will probably make your brain, brain explode, but it'll be good for you. So there it is. Uh, pick up next week.